From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Mars is a popular hangout these days. An Emirati mission just entered orbit with a spacecraft built in Boulder. The Chinese have arrived, and the U.S. isn't far behind. Astronomer Doug Duncan joins us. Then choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson on breath, racial justice, and coaching her dancers over video chat. We learned that Zoom is delayed. So musically, if I snap my fingers now and I'm trying to find a rhythm, you're not going to see it on Zoom the same way. Later, a curious thrift store find, an old down vest made in Colorado. Frostline was assemble your own outdoor wear. They would actually give people a tube of down that they could stuff into the baffles. And then when they squeezed it, the tube would open. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Highlands Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and there's going to be something of a traffic jam on and around Mars over the next week or so. Several missions arrived or arriving. Astronomer Doug Duncan is back. He's with the University of Colorado and joins us regularly to discuss all things space. Hi again, Doug. Hello again, Ryan. Three different Martian missions. Why is Mars so important? What's the lure? Well, I think the big lure is the search for life on Mars. Um, After all, uh, if we found evidence of life on Mars, I think it would be maybe the most important discovery ever made. It would have profound philosophical and religious implications. I think most people have wondered, um, are we alone in the universe? You can look up at the sky and There's billions of stars and billions and billions of planets. Carl Sagan once memorably said that life is either a miracle or a statistic. Either we're alone in the whole vast universe or we have company out there. And as a scientist, I think it's really exciting that it's our job to look and, and find out. Is the idea that there would be life on Mars now or we're looking for evidence of life that once was? You know, I think in in a way it doesn't matter. Um, We want to know how life started. How did it start on the earth? And if we can find out that it started, I think that's the big discovery. It'd be great if it was still there, but even uh, past life evidence would be great. And we'll talk about how these various missions might illuminate that. Uh, The first of these Mars encounters came Tuesday when the Mars Hope Probe entered the red planet's orbit. Uh, It's owned by the United Arab Emirates, but was built by CU in a collaboration. What's the Mars Hope Probe supposed to accomplish? Well, it's mostly going to study the atmosphere and the weather and the climate on Mars. We already know that Mars has these huge dust storms, and we know that its climate is changing and it's losing a lot of its atmosphere. So we'd really like to understand that. And I I think it's worth pointing out that 
climate and weather are really important here on the Earth. And by studying more than one planet, we actually get a better idea of how these things work on the Earth. So it's pretty valuable. Yeah, maybe a sense of climate change in particular. Tell us a little bit about this collaboration between uh, UAE and CU. How did that work out? You know, it's been really productive. It's been going on roughly five years. And there's really good engineers in the Emirates, of course. Um, They have the world's tallest building in the Emirates. Um, But they hadn't built spacecraft. And they looked around to find who's really good at building spacecraft. And they settled on Colorado. And so we've been working together very productively for about five years. NASA's goal is to get people to Mars by the 2030s. I I am curious how the rather unfriendly Martian climate would impact that. Well, that's definitely part of something that NASA has to prepare for. Um, And I don't think because Mars climate, because Mars atmosphere is very thin, I don't think we're worried about being blown away like in the movie, The Martian. (laughs) Um, But still understanding what the climate and the weather's like is, is very important before anybody goes there. Just what are a few of the challenges of getting people there? Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, let's defer that until we talk about how the American probe is going to land. Okay. Okay. Well, and and again, three missions altogether. So I'll briefly mention China's before we talk about the U.S. mission. Uh, China's got an orbiter, a lander, a rover that began orbiting Mars just today, studying Martian geography, the climate, atmosphere, and then... As you were hinting there, Doug Duncan, next Thursday, February 18th, the landing of NASA's latest project, a rover called Perseverance. Uh, what's Perseverance like? Well, at first glance, Perseverance looks a lot like the Curiosity rover that preceded it. Uh, it's going to an interesting new spot that I, I hope we'll talk about. Yeah. But uh, believe it or not, it's been nine years since we landed the Curiosity rover on Mars. And even though they both look kind of the same, like a small car, the new one has much more powerful instruments. I use the analogy of a, of a smartphone, actually. My smartphone looks pretty much like the smartphone from nine years ago, but it's a lot more powerful. <laughs> and it has some new instruments, doesn't it? It does. For instance, uh, it's got more and better cameras, like my cell phone. Um, Curiosity had seven cameras, and it sent back some pretty awesome pictures of Mars. And I hope everybody's looked those up on the Internet. But Perseverance has 23 cameras. They're mostly color. Uh, They they have zoom. Some of them are stereoscopic cameras. Um, And for the first time, Perseverance carries a microphone. This is what I'm most excited about. The microphone. So does that mean we're going to hear what Mars sounds like? We sure are. Um, I think we'll hear the these winds, dust storms perhaps, blowing dust. Um, I doubt if we'll hear birds, um, but I'm sure we're going to hear the sounds of perseverance driving around and, and what the, the wheels crunch and, and roll over and the sound of drilling into into the rocks and and maybe some surprises because we've never had the sounds of Mars. I'm very excited to hear what that would be. There's this instrument Um, called MOXIE, Doug. What's MOXIE? Yeah, MOXIE is a very important test. MOXIE can make oxygen out of the carbon dioxide in Mars' atmosphere. And it's designed to demonstrate how future explorers could make oxygen right there on Mars. 
And you have brought us to my uh, question earlier, which is the challenges of putting people on Mars. I mean, obviously, oxygen would be one of them. Um, it is. You need oxygen to breathe, of course. But don't forget, the rocket also needs oxygen. The way a rocket works is you mix liquid oxygen and fuel. And so if you could make oxygen right there on Mars, it means you wouldn't have to carry all of it from the Earth in order to have a, a return rocket. Mm. So I think it would make it a lot more feasible to send humans to Mars and back uh, if we could make oxygen right there on Mars. And this is a test. This perplexes me. There is a helicopter called Ingenuity. And I just want to say that there are Colorado companies all over the U.S. mission. I mean, Lockheed Martin, United Launch Alliance, Sierra Nevada Corporation, all of them have collaborated on this. Uh, but this helicopter ingenuity, how would a helicopter fly in the thin Martian atmosphere? Well, it's really a challenge. Uh, actually, one of the students who worked with me was on the ingenuity project, and she was testing it. And uh it has two blades that are about four feet across that op that rotate opposite each other. And the counter rotating blades go 2,400 RPM. That's like 40 times a second uh, to get enough lift. And the whole uh, ingenuity only weighs four pounds and it's solar powered. Now, of course, there's nobody there to fly it in person. And so it's kind of more like a drone with its own little computer yeah. and it's pre-programmed to fly up about mm, 50, 60 feet. It looks around with two little cameras and it's kind of a scout. And this is a test to see if a scout helicopter can help us explore faster and better by kind of seeing what's over the horizon for the rover to explore. So this is going to be a very interesting test. Ingenuity. It's helpful to understand that it's not a full-sized helicopter. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're having a regular conversation about space and science with Doug Duncan from the University of Colorado. Now, uh, Doug, you made a reference earlier to a really interesting place that this Martian Perseverance mission plans to land. Uh, talk about this spot. So we're headed for a place called Jezero Crater. And Jezero is really interesting because that crater was once underwater. Oh, You can tell that looking at pictures taken from space because the crater rim has a big gap in it where a river once flowed. And there's a delta and mud. Looks just like the mouth of the Mississippi, except a lot smaller. And so there's lots of layers of mud and sediment, and it used to be wet. And that seems like a very good place to look for life. What would signs of past life look like? Um, fossil, well, like fossils? You know, uh, it would be great to find a fossil. Um, what I think is more probable is what colonies of bacteria leave. On the Earth, some of the earliest life was cyanobacteria or blue-green algae. Yeah. And the algae often live in big colonies that are like sheets or mats, like a, like a dinner mat, all spread across. And if sediments cover those up, you end up with uh, kind of layered or striped fossils that are called stromatolites. And those are the oldest uh, fossils in Colorado, as a matter of fact, are stromatolites. As a matter of fact, there was a stromatolite in my driveway. So uh, 
the Perseverance rover has uh, an instrument that shoots x-rays into rocks and it can tell what they're made of. And it's got those zoom cameras that can zoom in for a really good close-up. So I think the most likely sign of life that could be found if it's there uh, is something like the stromatolites, the old fossils on the earth. You know, I, goog see. I googled stromatolites because I wanted to see what images of them looked like. Um, you know, they kind of look like clusters of dung. <laughs> so maybe that's what we're looking for on Mars. Um, that is. And I think our cameras and our instruments have the ability to find it um, if it's there. Uh, Perseverance is also supposed to collect samples that could be returned to Earth. How is that going to happen? I mean, you, you, you talked already about the difficulty of returning stuff from Mars. Well, so there's two parts. There's the collect and there's the return. And Perseverance is going to be really good at collecting samples. I was out at JPL in, in California, and I saw them testing this. And what Perseverance has is a drill on the, on the end of a long arm, so it can probe a lot of different places. This drill has very special drill bits. Um, the drill bits are hollow. And so what that means is when you drill down, you can extract a sample from the middle of the drill bit. It's kind of like um, maybe pencil shaped or like a fat pencil. And then uh, Perseverance takes these samples and puts them in tubes and seals them. Hmm. And so as it drives all around on Mars, it'll be collecting more and more samples and eventually put them all together, essentially in, in a box. And it's going to leave that box on the surface of Mars for pickup. Huh. Not FedEx, but... Um, <laughs> probably, Amazon's not there yet. Yeah, yeah not even UPS. Um, but a, if we're lucky, maybe 10 years from now, we will have a future mission oh. that will go to Mars and land uh, right where this set of samples was left and pick them up. And remember, they're sealed to, to protect against contamination. And then it'll lift off into orbit around Mars and come back to the Earth and return the samples. And, and I think that'll be fantastic when we do that, because even though the Mars Perseverance is very competent rover, it doesn't have all the instruments that we have in labs back here on the Earth. And so if you could return samples to the Earth, that greatly increases the chance of finding something very interesting. Oh, I feel so close to Mars right now, thanks to you, Doug Duncan. We, we have about a minute left, and I really don't want to leave without mentioning an upcoming anniversary for Pluto. It was discovered 91 years ago on February 18th. For a long time, of course, Pluto was considered a planet. It's since been downgraded to a dwarf planet because of its size. That was a decision you participated in. Any regrets, just briefly? Oh, no regrets at all, uh, Ryan. It, it is true. I'm one of the people who voted Pluto off the island. Um, <laughs> but I, I did that knowing that Pluto should be pretty happy. And the reason is, it's not really the tail end of the other eight planets. Pluto is number one of a whole collection of a new kind of object. You can call it dwarf planets. You can call it the Kuiper Belt. And there's a whole bunch of rocky, icy things out where Pluto is and beyond, and even far beyond. It's kind of a new zone of our solar system. And Pluto is the prototype of these new dwarf planets. And you know, the mission that went to, to 
Pluto, the New Horizons mission, sent back wonderful pictures as it flew past Pluto. It's still going. And NASA has given it permission to visit some more of these objects way out there. So uh, don't cry for Pluto. Um, it's number one in this new new class of dwarf planets. Thank you so much, Doug. I appreciate it. Always fascinating. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Doug Duncan is former director of the Fisk Planetarium at CU Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. There aren't nearly enough early childhood educators in Colorado, especially ones who speak Spanish. CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine examines a program in the Roaring Fork Valley that could be a model for recruiting and training Spanish-speaking providers in rural areas. Even when Lupita wraps up a long week of taking care of children in her home, Saturdays aren't for resting. Rather, the 54-year-old logs on to two hours of virtual lessons about brain development in young children. Lupita, we're using her first name because she's undocumented, says the way she's taken care of kids for two decades is really different from how children are now, from what they eat and the games they play to how caregivers interact with children. Just recently, she learned all about preventing SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, placing infants on their backs to sleep, not using pillows or fluffy comforters. She says she used to use all those things. It was just the custom. She says in the early days, she didn't think much about teaching children as they play. Now, the kids she cares for know how to count. She's always stretching their minds with questions. There's only enough childcare slots for 40% of Colorado's young children. Many of the rest are taken care of by women like Lupita. These informal childcare businesses are legal. But many in the Roaring Fork Valley are unlicensed by the state. Kenya Pinella with the nonprofit Valley Settlement in Carbondale says they serve a critical need. If the systems were designed to support low-income families and to have child care that is affordable and that meets parents' needs in terms of parents who work two jobs, parents who work night shifts, parents who work until 6, 7, 8 p.m., then we wouldn't have this informal child care setting. So Valley Settlement is trying to support the women who do most of this caretaking through a 24-month training program. The dozen women in this Zoom class are reviewing safety for their exam, everything from what to do if a child is choking to the best ways to disinfect. The class discusses issues, does short answer questions like this one. What's the first step if a child suffers a burn? Put the burn under cold water before applying ointment. The demand for these classes is high. Many women like Lupita tried regular community college classes, but they were too expensive. Language was a barrier, and they had children to take care of. Lupita still wanted to learn. A neighbor told her about classes she could take through Valley Settlement, the nonprofit. But she panicked. How could she take classes that included home coaching when she wasn't licensed? 
Colorado doesn't have a training program for unlicensed providers, but the Valley Settlement Program is tailored to the needs of Latina home providers like her. The goal is to get them a credential and, if possible, one day licensed. Kenya Pinella wants to give the women, many longtime providers, all the latest best practices for teaching young children. We come in and we want to change their way of being. That's going to be really challenging. It has been really challenging for us. But when we make it culturally responsive to who they are, to their values, and to what's important to them, we will start to see those behavior changes. The courses are free using a homegrown curriculum based on state standards at a more convenient time. Even during the Saturday Zoom class, though, some women are keeping an eye on their own children at the same time. Lupita's been studying for two years. She'll finish in May. It's not been easy. She's had to learn to use a computer, how to email assignments. She says there's a lot to read, and sometimes her eyes give out. But she loves learning, like how to talk to younger children in a way that makes them open up. Lupita, even over the phone, exudes warmth and love for children. She says she's a protector, especially of children from homes where she believes the parents don't have the skills to care for them well. Lupita knows there are many women like her who, with support, could be a critical link in a new, more educated early childhood workforce. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. It's time to turn the page with Colorado Matters. That's our virtual book club. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. So this time, we are reading a novel about animals. It's called Other People's Pets by Boulder author R.L. Mazes, and we chose it as a pandemic escape. The main character, Lala, dreams of becoming a veterinarian, but her unconventional family life gets in the way. Even though she has to drop out of vet school, Lala remains connected to pets. That's because she's an animal empath, meaning she feels in her own body what animals feel. Here's author R.L. Mazes. That came about while I was writing. And when I realized that she was an animal empath, I got so excited. As a writer, I was excited because I thought, what a fantastic experience it's going to be to write this book and imagine what her life is like with this talent. But also I thought, wow, readers um, might really enjoy spending 300 pages with a character who can feel what animals feel, who see the world almost through the eyes of animals. R.L. Mazes of Boulder has written Other People's Pets. Pick up a copy and read it, and then join me Saturday morning, February 27th, for a virtual chat with R.L. You'll be able to ask questions, and we'll record the whole thing to air later on the radio. Tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. That's cpr.org slash turn the page. Okay, Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how a Denver dance company is reflecting the twin pandemics of COVID and systemic racism. I'm Brian Warner. You're at CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. Last season, we told stories of life's challenges, of recovery, and hope. 
and you listen. Really blown away by back from broken. Back from broken inspired me to. Thank you very much for your messages of recovery and hope. They mean a lot to a parent like me. So this season on Back from Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here. You know, it's in being alive. Find Back from Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Talk about a challenge choreographing during a pandemic when everyone's remote and audiences are virtual. But Cleo Parker Robinson rose, even leapt to the challenge. Now her Denver company is back in person with several shows planned this month. Cleo, thank you so much for being with us again. It's great to be here with you, Ryan. This is great, even if it's on Zoom. Even if it's on Zoom, as most of our lives are these days. Well, after several months working on Zoom, in fact, your dance company is back to live rehearsals and even performances, but with limited audiences. How is being back on stage now different from pre-pandemic times? It was so wonderful to get back on stage. I can't tell you, we were ecstatic. It was like you you really appreciate some of the really small things in your life that we take for granted. Like what? But, um, breathing, like breathing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, breathing differently now that we have, we're in our masks the whole time we're working. Nobody ever takes it off. So that was the first thing to learn how to breathe with the mask and not to get psychologically psyched out uh, like you can't breathe. And then you go, yes, you can just keep breathing through, you know, learning to breathe differently. You know, it's so demanding, but it was so wonderful to feel like we were back in this kind of community and village. And, you know, it was great. Now, can the dancers be close together? You know, what we've been doing is getting tested. Um, I have dancers that are flying in. So every time they, if they've gotten on a plane, they have to test right away and then isolate. And the thing that's changed the most is the choreography because the, most of the choreography is where we're physically touching. And we had to just kind of figure that out um, for a good while. Now we feel like we're a cluster and um, there's a little more trust that we can be closer, but mm. we still have really sort of re-choreographed a, a lot of and reimagined the work. And it's such a creative process. I mean, at first I was just vexed. I was like, how am I going to do this? And then you just start doing it. And then you start having fun. Hmm. You go, okay, I know you were touching here, but guess what? You're not doing that. So how can you imagine the same kind of experience and, and feeling without touching or without, without lifting? I mean, the real big lifts and um, the partnering is what, what's more challenging. Yeah. The real exertion in a shared yeah. experience. I, I want to pick up on something you said earlier about masks. I can't breathe. And of course, that became uh, a refrain and a rallying cry to some extent after some of the police brutality that we have seen. And I just wonder if you've given some thought to that idea of breath, because so much of your work is often focused on racial justice. Yeah. With all of this pandemic that went on, it was real clear to us you know, it started with COVID, but it was really clear that it was racism at the same time. When we saw, when the world saw George Floyd, it was shocking. And at the same time, because, you know, I'm much older than the dancers. I'm about 50 years older. <laughs> I'm 70 and they're in their 20s. And I just, I, I had to go back to my work and realize that the work was, was even more important that kind of consciousness that this is inhuman, 
the, the, the humanity of what we expect from one another was being threatened. Um, and I think people reacting all over the world was really phenomenal. Um, well, and and I, so it was really about life is breath for all of us. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't come in a religion. It doesn't come in a in a sex, gender. It doesn't come in an income. It is life itself. And so for us to go back to respecting each other's lives made the work that we began to do online even more focused. Everything began all like, whoa, we better focus on what does this mean? Anger, frustration, isolation, fear, pain, tremendous pain, like a blood memory. Um, and then it went into another place of we have people in the world who care about this and how do we align um, and, and create art that really does have the opportunity now to transform. The performance that's coming up imminently is actually a collection of dancing diaries that your, yes. your dancers choreographed themselves. Do you want to say a few words about this? One is that we have the opportunity to continue working. We never stopped. The company never stopped, the staff never stopped, and everybody was really trying to come into what is possible while we cannot come together. Hmm. So we, we got really creative about how we felt every day. And it, it was healing. I mean, people could go, I'm going to turn on my camera, but I really feel isolated. And so how do you feel today? Write down what you feel. So we'd start journaling. Then it was like mind-blowing. We, we began to know each other better. <laughs> through the daily diaries, things that you would never share in a dance studio. Because when you go into the dance studio, you take your class, you go to choreography, you're doing somebody else's choreography, and you do it. What was an example of something a dancer shared in this space that they would have never shared in normal times? People had breakups with their partners, and that was really painful. And one dancer shared the pain of her... Um, Right before she came to Denver, she had a breakup with a boyfriend and she was not able to say the words to him that she wanted to say. So it was a poem about silence, about how we become silent about what we really feel. And so when she shared that poem, she gave the poem to another dancer and the dancer danced the way she felt. Oh. So they were able to have this sense of empathy. How is it to coach dance virtually? Well, we learned a lot. We learned that Zoom is, it's a delayed kind of thing that takes place. So musically, if I snap my fingers now and I'm trying to find a rhythm, you're not going to see it on Zoom the same way. So then we began to just kind of broaden the way we looked at it. Um, but I had my rehearsal director, Chloe uh, Grant Abel, would study the tapes and then we would study dancers individually now. So everybody got more individual work mm. than a collective work. And so we had to go really in patience. Like if you move down to the floor, wait, move your camera down. Like I just lost you. <laughs> now you just stood up. I'm seeing your center. I don't see your head. So we just had to find ways of connecting the body parts. Really, that was um, that was kind of fun. Right. The idea of keeping dancers who have the stage usually within the frame of the camera or moving the camera accordingly. So I, I do want to talk, Cleo Parker Robinson, about this new show called Rise and Move coming up this month. What is the gist? Well, I, I think for me, just the title itself 
is that we have to be about getting up. We can, even though we're isolated and people are still going through whatever challenges, some can't move physically, emotionally. Mm. They haven't gotten that place yet. But they've got to get up and they have to move and they have to find something to move about. So the show, the concert is going to be things that we have performed before that give the spirit, we're doing a spirit uplift. We're going to uplift those spirits. Even if it's a small space, whatever it is, whoever's in the space with us, we can move with them. And the theme is Umoja. It's called unity. How do we pull together? How do we help the nation understand how to do that? Which I think is a tentative Kwanzaa as well, correct? Oh, yeah. 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 You're so good. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. So (laughs) now you'll have limited attendance, 50 people in the audience, and it will stream for folks. I I know that for some artists, this has been a very difficult time. Uh, You've managed to keep Cleo Parker Robinson dance open, and your donors have been generous, I understand, at this time. Oh, the donors have been phenomenal. We've been very, very blessed I I mean, at this moment, I really give thanks for everyone who believes in the arts and believes that we we need them. They're essential. They're essential to our souls, you know, and to balancing our mind, body, spirit, and emotion. And then like with building our stage, they gave again. And I went, oh my God, how generous is that? Because you did a big renovation of that historic building uh, near Five Points. We did. We rebuilt the entire stage. I mean, we gutted everything and rebuilt it, and we did a blessing. Earlier, Cleo Parker Robinson, you talked about having something to dance about. I love that mm. expression, right? We we think of talking about things or thinking about things. What are you dancing about these days? Well, you know, there's so many big things going on and so many political things going on. I've done so much of it already. (laughs) I've done that. I mean, I've been around that corner. So I'm pulling my archives and I'm restudying myself. (laughs) I'm studying our community again um, by doing a Sankofa, going back. So this translates uh, in the Akantui and Fante languages of Ghana into go back and get it, Uh, which which seems like a great note to end on. Cleo, thank you. right. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. And I just love the fact that you you really are a dancer in spirit. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Thank you. Cleo Parker Robinson. Her company does a live stream performance today at one for Black History Month. Then the show Rise and Moves. Rise and Move, that is, comes to the Lone Tree Arts Center February 21st and North Glen Arts February 25th and 26th. That's a production you can see either in person or remotely. Teachers in Colorado can get the COVID-19 vaccine starting this week, but some aren't confident they'll get it quickly. Reporter of Ignesh Ramachadran spoke with educators around the state. Rhiannon Wenning is a high school teacher in Jefferson County. She teaches history, but when you're living history, that is with the ongoing COVID pandemic, the lessons can get all too real. Last semester when I was teaching about the Black Plague, 
um, students were able to make many comparisons and parallels between the Black Plague and what's going on right now with COVID. So teaching during the time of coronavirus with its inherent risks and the balance that's needed between returning kids to school and keeping everyone in a school healthy and safe, that's all history making too. Everything that we're teaching is they're able to see and are experiencing themselves. While teachers continue to do what they do, educate our kids, many of them say they're also putting themselves at serious risk of getting sick, especially as many school districts around Colorado either have or soon will transition back to full or part-time in-person learning. They're going back into our school buildings with fear and We don't want, you know, that's not good for educators, that's not good for students. Amy Baca-Oler is the president of the Colorado Education Association, the state's biggest teachers union. Our teachers are certainly uh, filled with a lot of anxiety right now. They certainly have that that pull to want to be in person with their students. That's the the best place they want to be. But they also have a fear around, you know, not having that layering protective strategy of a vaccine. Teachers in Colorado, as well as all student support staff in schools, are now eligible to start getting the vaccine. When Governor Jared Polis announced that teachers would be eligible, he told teachers they should talk to their school districts about getting the shots. But right now, it's not clear how well each district will be able to connect the state's more than 55,000 teachers with vaccinations. And that's not even considering how the state intends to vaccinate all the staff at licensed early childhood education facilities that aren't connected to a school district. Wenning says she's not sure how her district, Jefferson County Public Schools, can handle the rollout. Especially if they're telling teachers and educators to stop calling places to get signed up because there's no appointments or not enough vaccines to go around. Baca Olert says she hopes districts have been spending time coordinating with healthcare providers and local health departments. I think that's one of the the hardest things that we've seen since the vaccine uh, rollout kind of talk started is just this lack of clarity around plans and how things are going to work. For many teachers, the waiting game is weighing on them. Mike Maes is a special education teacher in Pueblo. He says his district is working with the county health department and Kaiser Permanente. Ultimately, it boils down to the supply chain, you know, and teachers across the state are all very anxious about getting themselves vaccinated so that we can be safer in the school. It's just another level, another layer of security so that we can try to get back to normal classroom environments. The largest school district in the state, Denver Public Schools, is partnering with Children's Hospital, who will help teachers schedule appointments. DPS started vaccinating staff last week, including some principals and other staff. But for now, some teachers say the wait is putting teachers and their families at risk. Katie Martin teaches third grade in DPS. I regularly, multiple times a week, listen to educators cry, being worried that they're going to bring this home to their young children or to their spouses. And I think it was a great first step to move educators up. I just think that it's still a very scary time to be an educator in Colorado. Governor Polis says the state is aiming at getting the vaccine in the arms of all educators in the state within two or three weeks. In Grand Junction, Kevin LaDuke was one of the first teachers in his school to get it. I was lucky when they opened it up for the beginning of 1B because educators were on that timeline at first, and I actually had my first um, dose. LaDuke, who teaches sixth grade social studies and science, just got his second dose on Friday. 
And now the rest of the educators will get in as soon as the vaccines are uh, available and really kind of get things moving where we can get education back to a one-on-one and all classrooms full. And that's the hope as the statewide rollout starts one by one by one. For CPR News, I'm Vignesh Ramachandran. Our next story starts with a thrift store treasure, a retro vest I found. The tag said, made from a frost line kit, Denver, Colorado. Now, it's not every day you find clothing made in Colorado. So I went to Twitter and asked if people recognized the brand. Boy, did they ever. I had a down jacket, a red down jacket that I sewed. And I think I did that before the the sleeping bag. Frostline was so your own outdoor gear based in Colorado, now defunct. And as you heard, Dominique Schiffer of Denver had several pieces. And it also required me to buy a sewing machine, which actually the memory of that was it was my first time taking out a loan. I took out a loan for like $60, I think, to buy a sewing machine. Maybe maybe it was $160, but it was my first official loan to get credit so I could sew my first frost line down sleeping bag. Well, I just had to learn more. So I ran across an article from KUNC Public Radio in Greeley. Stephanie Page Ogburn used to be a reporter there and wrote a history of frost line. Stephanie, it occurred to me when I learned a little bit more about these frost line kits that they were like Ikea for clothing. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I, I would say they were like Ikea, but they actually did have written instructions. <laughs> As opposed to awkward drawings that you had to suss out. Yes, exactly. So what were Frostline kits? What did you learn about them? Yeah, so it was in the 60s and 70s, and the outdoor experience industry was in its early days. People were getting excited about going into the mountains, skiing, hiking, camping, and these gear companies were popping up. So REI, Sierra Designs, but their gear was pretty expensive, which, you know, is not too different from how it is now. Right. And people were looking for ways to have gear that would keep them warm or protected from the elements without spending a fortune. And so Frostline came about as a result of that. It was DIY make your own, sew your own outdoor gear. And you would buy these kits in stores or have them mailed to you? And what do they look like? I was unable to see a kit. I have only seen the completed projects. Uh-huh, just like um, me, okay. <laughs> but I did talk with a fellow who wrote a book about Frostline, Bruce Johnson. And he said that they were able to give people these kits without having even a pattern. So everything was already pre-cut for people. And so you would get a kit and in that way, it is a lot like Ikea. Everything's already pre-made for you. And in the 60s and 70s, sewing was still a much more popular activity. Almost everyone had a sewing machine at home. And so they would just come with the instructions and be able to sew it all together. And there were even technological innovations in that at first it would be very challenging to say fill a coat with down because I don't know if you've ever had a feather pillow explode, (laughs) (laughs) but the, the feathers just go everywhere. Right. And so how do you get people to be able to stuff their down jackets with down? 
well, there was some innovation in that area where they would actually give people a tube of down that they could stuff into the baffles. And then when they squeezed it, the tube would open and the down would be squeezed directly into the tube. Oh, that's just ingenious. And I guess we, we should talk about the founder, the mind behind Frostline Kits. Yeah, Dale Johnson, um, he had worked previously in the outdoor industry. And from the reporting I did, he just saw this as a need. So people really just wanted to get outside. They wanted the gear, but they didn't want to pay the prices. And at the time, there were just a lot of people who were willing to sew their own. And so he launched his company and it was based in Boulder and then in Broomfield. And it was around for quite a while. It ultimately got bought by Gillette, like the razor company in the 90s. And then it kind of faded away after that. There just wasn't the demand. And, you know, a lot of times when companies get bought by other companies, it's not necessarily to continue to grow that company. And I think that's what happened in the case of Frostline. Now, I found a vest, a vest that is like straight out of a 70s movie. It's got, I think, like Nubbuck and um, it's a little overstuffed. I feel a little bit like Robert Redford when I'm wearing it. (laughs) What other sorts of gear did Frostline make or did Frostline have you make? (laughs) Exactly. Um, Well, they had tents and they had jackets and obviously vests, but I think it was a wide range of of outdoor gear. I even came across an old ad and you could see, you know, it's just a great ad. It's like totally 1960s style, these hand-drawn models looking very stylish, wearing their Frostline gear, you know, a jacket, hat, gloves, pants, all this stuff. It appears, at least from the vest I found and the outpouring of memories that I saw on Twitter, when I posted a photo of this vest, it seems like they really lasted. Uh, Maybe that was a testament to how well they were put together in people's individual homes. Yeah. I mean, the, the fellow I interviewed for this story or one of the men that I interviewed for this story, he was probably in his mid late twenties and he got the coat from his grandmother who made it. So that was just a few years ago that I spoke with him in Fort Collins and he modeled his coat for me and he still wears it when he goes out skiing. So it's lasted at least since the 80s when his grandmother made it. Well, thanks so much. This has been fascinating history. I appreciate you sharing your reporting. Sure thing. Stephanie Page Ogburn, formerly of KUNC, wrote a history of Frostline kits The Sew Your Own Outdoor Gear Company was based in Colorado. Paige Ogburn has since gone on to co-found her own communications firm. Finally today, 20-year-old Chutez Cot Martinez sometimes wishes he could just hang out. But then it's time to speak at the United Nations or join a climate protest with Greta Thunberg or appear on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Our generation is being bombarded with media that's showing us that it's over. You know, climate change is the greatest issue of our time. We have politicians that aren't supporting, you know, our survival. And there's so many problems all over the world. Everywhere we look, there's more crises. And there's no way for our voices to be used to create solutions. So young people are searching for that. Martinez, a Boulder native, has championed environmental causes since he was six. 
A few years ago, he was among the 21 young plaintiffs who sued the federal government to take more action against climate change. The case was dismissed last January, a decision that they are appealing. I asked Martinez back in 2016 if he begrudged his parents for bringing him into such a broken world. You know, I think that there's no better time to be alive than now because we are amongst one of the greatest man-made crises of all time. And I think a part of that comes with the responsibility um, to be the generation that is really going to help determine the direction of where this goes and where our children and our grandchildren um, are going to have. So I've never had a grudge against my parents for, for bringing me into the world. I just feel like it's given me an amazing opportunity to try to help inspire a generation to be a part of something better and leave something better than the world our parents left us. One way Martinez engages young people is through hip-hop, performing simply as Shutez Cut. His songs celebrate his indigenous roots with lyrics that go between Spanish and English, like on the new track El Cielo. Reach out and take my hand Open up your eyes, I'm gonna show you who I am Escucha mi amor, tengo mucho que contar Medio complicado, mi pasado tan real Una historia de amor, quien sabe que será, que será Espejo del cielo, me lo dieron sin pensar Como mis ancestros, elders ready in the stars, yeah Boy to a man, I'm the product of a border in the sand, yes I've been wide awake, I'm sick of the cold I'm acting okay when I'm really afraid Don't want them to know, do I'm a hit that's trying to get by How we gon' live right We didn't come here for free, no We didn't come here for free, no I've been wide awake, I'm sick of the cold I'm acting okay when I'm really afraid Climate activist and hip-hop artist Shutez Kot with the track El Cielo. His latest album, Runway Tapes, is out now. And that's Colorado Matters for today, made possible every day by... Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lil, Pedro Lumbrano, Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. It's as deep as a pain. It's my family home. I've been one awake. I'm sick of the cold. I'm acting okay.